Hey. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. Not even me. All right? All right. You got a dream, you got to protect it. People can't do something themselves. They want to tell you you can't do it. You want something, go get it. Period. How many people watch that movie, The Pursuit of Happiness? A lot of you. Did anyone watch it without crying? I did. I just had something in my eye. So, I mean, uh, you know, I think the reason that, you know, we cry when we watch that movie is because it is epic and compelling. Uh, it's a movie that is kind of based on the idea that America was built on, that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? There are these inalienable rights that we have as human beings. And, and I tell you what, so many people have fought for and died for and given up so much of themselves so that we can have these rights, so that we can have freedom. And if you have never seen this movie, there's, it's this guy, uh, Will, played by Will Smith, and he's had a lot of tough breaks in life. He's worked very hard to, to gain, you know, just some sort of stability for himself and for his family. And things haven't always gone well. You know, a lot of people have, have taken advantage of him and things have not worked out well for him. And, and I think we can feel that, we can relate, we can understand, maybe not to the extent uh, of his life, but I would imagine that most of us in here, if not all of us, have been cheated at one time or another, that we had the, a right to do something, a right to have something, we were free to do something, and someone took it from us. Or, or someone, you know, cheated us out of a job or out of a promotion, uh, someone gossip about, gossiped about us, and so we were excluded from a friend group. Or it, someone, you know, cheated on a test, and then we weren't the valedictorian. I mean, there's a number of things that go on in our life that make us realize that this is a dog-eat-dog dog world. That if we want something, we've got to make it happen. We've got to protect it because no one else is going to, right? People are going to go behind our back. People are going to try and cheat us out of things. And so we have to make it happen. And when we hear that speech that he gives to his son, it's like, yeah, oh, I can feel it. I know. I can relate. And this is not a new feeling. It's not a, a, a new idea. Back 2,000 years ago, you know, the people that Paul was uh, writing to had a lot of these same feelings and ideals, things that they were struggling with and wrestling with. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is in the New Testament. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which was a city. It was a very large and important city, and it was a city not unlike modern-day Las Vegas, a very pleasure-seeking city, a city that was very decadent and you know, very much about themselves. It was an idol-saturated culture. There were a number of different gods and goddesses that these people worshipped. There were a bunch of different temples where they would go and worship these gods and goddesses. And every t ever since they were little, they had grown up praying to these gods. Ever since they were little, they'd grown up worshiping these gods and giving money to these gods and sacrificing to these gods. So this was something that was deeply ingrained in their minds, in their hearts. And then Paul plants a church. 
and they begin to follow after Jesus. And Paul says, hey, there is no God but one, right? All these other idols, they're not really gods, and we should worship God. I can't imagine how radical that must have been, how, how, how difficult it must have been to go from that life to this new life in Christ, to say no to the old things and yes to the new things. I mean, it was really hard, it caused them to be ostracized from probably a lot of their friends and family members and, and the community and not, not being able to participate in some of the things that were going on. So Paul stays there for about a year and a half. And during that year and a half, he's raising up and training up leaders and disciples. And then he leaves. He's gone for about another year and a half or two years. And then he writes this letter, the first letter to the church of Corinth. And he writes it because there are a number of problems that are going on in this church. And all of these problems, they exist kind of on this foundational idea that there's the wisdom of God and there's the wisdom of this world. And the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world are at odds with one another. And the Corinthians had been operating under the wisdom of this world rather than under the wisdom of God. And so it worked itself out into a number of issues in their church. And so Paul is writing to them to say, hey, here's how you act like the church. Here's how you operate like the church. Here's how you think like the church and not the world. Uh, over the last three weeks, there was kind of a sub-series within the book of Corinthians where Paul talked about singleness and marriage and sex and kind of unpacked, you know, what the wisdom of God has to say about that, what those things are. And then he changes subjects. So why don't you grab your Bibles. If you don't, uh, if you grab one of these uh, blue ones, it's going to be on page 621. It's going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. He kind of turns on a dime here. And Paul says, Now, concerning food offered to idols, at which you all jump to the edge of your seats, you're dying to know what Paul has to say about food offered to idols. Because if you were like me, you went to a dinner party this week and there was some meat that was set before you. And the host said, Hey, by the way, this was offered to an idol. Just FYI. <laughs> has that happened to anyone ever in their life? No, right? I mean, this is one of those things that, that you can immediately say, okay, this doesn't apply to me. I can go ahead and skip on to the next section of Scripture. I don't do that, but I have a friend who does that sometimes. When he, when he reads Scripture and he finds pieces that don't really apply, just kind of skips over and moves on. But I tell you what, if we do, we will miss a beautiful truth that is completely applicable to us today. Here's what was going on. Okay, when, when they would worship these different gods and goddesses at, at the temples, one of the things that they would do is they would sacrifice animals in worship to a god or goddess. And when you killed the animal, there was a bunch of meat left over, right? They didn't just stuff these animals and put them on their walls. That would be crazy. Who does that? But what they would do is they would, uh, <laughs> my dad, um, <laughs> What they would do is they would take the meat and they would sell it at the marketplace. So you could buy meat, just regular meat that was killed, or you could buy meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And meat was a fairly big deal. It's a big deal here today. Right? You have to pay, you know, kind of a steep price to get that good, you know, grass-fed Hereford. You know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. But back in that day, it was an even bigger deal because it was an agrarian society where they would eat things that were grown from the ground, things that were green, things that kids don't like. That's basically what people ate for the most part, a lot of bread, a lot of, a lot of carbs, right? There, were, there was no Atkins diet back then. Atkins diet was called starving. Um, and, so, and so meat was a big deal. 
It was a giant deal. And so uh, sometimes you would get invited over to someone's house and they would serve you some meat. And it just happened to be offered to an idol in, in their temple worship. And so you had some people in the Corinthian church who said, wait a second, I remember Paul said that we, we've been set free and there's no other gods but one. And so if it's offered to an idol, then it's not really offered to a god at all. It's just killed, right? Just in a different place than where some other meat is killed. So it's no big deal if I eat this. And you had other people who had been really deeply ingrained in idol worship. And they said, wait a second, if it was sacrificed to an idol in worship, then it's not okay for me to eat it. Hey, there's, there, there's no way I can do that. My conscience would be burdened if I did that. And so you had these two groups of people in the same church. And you can imagine how that got along right? You can imagine because there are things even in our, our churches today where we disagree upon and we fight about it and, and, and it's difficult. So how do we interact with this? And so Paul tells us, he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now you'll see all of us possess knowledge. That's in quotes. Because Paul is quoting the, the Corinthians. This was a saying that they had, something that they would say to, to justify their actions. He's like, hey, we've all attained to this higher knowledge. Right? We're no longer where we were. We've attained to this higher, better knowledge. We know more. And Paul says this knowledge puffs up. Anyone ever come across a brand new fact that, that none of your friends or family members knew. Have you ever, that ever happened to you? What did you want to do when you learned this? You wanted to tell people about it. Why? To inform them or to let them know how much you know? Let's be honest. Come on. What, see, what happens is knowledge has the tendency, knowledge isn't bad, but it has the tendency to puff up the individual, to make you feel better, to make you feel superior, and begin to look down on the people that don't know quite as much. My, my little brother, growing up, he would amass information. Uh, he was just a sponge. He would watch TV and he'd, he'd know everything that was said. So whether he was watching ESPN or, or the news or whatever, he would gather all these little tidbits of knowledge so that he could use his favorite word, which was actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, see, someone would say something, he'd say, actually, and then whatever followed, you just didn't like, okay? Because, because he was saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, and he was normally right. But, but, but what happens, and I, I love this, this picture, he says, knowledge puffs up. I, I get the, the idea of a balloon. You got this balloon, it's this tiny little balloon, and you think, oh, it has not very much mass to it. But then you blow it up, you fill it up with air, and now it appears like it has a lot more mass, like it's much bigger than it actually is. And that's what knowledge has a tendency to do to the individual. The individual feels like they are bigger, better, smarter, wiser than they really are. That's the tendency that knowledge has. It can be about the individual and about me and what I know and not about the other person. And so he contrasts it with love. He says, but love builds up. Knowledge makes you feel bigger, makes you appear smarter, but love actually builds up. It actually does something. Uh, Paul, I believe, is giving allusions to chapter 3 when he says that he laid the foundation, which was Jesus Christ, and now all of us get the opportunity to build upon that foundation. And when we build upon that foundation, we're building up the church. And what love is, it actually builds up the church because love is not about me. It's not about the individual. It's about the other person. 
Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not seek its own way. Love is for the other person. Love is self-sacrificial for the good of the other person, for the good of the family, for the good of the body, the good of the community. That's what love is. So knowledge can puff up, but love actually builds others up. So you see this contrast between the individual and the community or the family or the body of Christ right on the onset. Paul says in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, I I love that. I love that. That does not sound pointed at all. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. The biggest obstacle for you to know anything is thinking you have it all figured out. That's what Paul is saying. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Let me just start this out right. It's not about what you know, but who you are known by. That's what matters. And when you love God, you are known by God. And that's what matters. It's about love being known by God and building up the body. That's what Paul says. That's the point of this life. And then he gets into the problem. And, and, and he addresses uh, the people that have this knowledge first. And he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. He says, Okay, great. You've got this knowledge, right? There is only one God. There's no other gods. You know that, a, that meat sacrificed to an idol isn't really sacrificed to a God because there are no other gods. We know this. But then in verse 7, he says, However, however, not all possess this knowledge. Right? You know this, but not everyone is there. Not everyone thinks this. Not everyone is, is fully there yet. The, you know, this was a church that was three years old. A, a three-year-old typically acts like a three-year-old. Right? Baby Christians typically ask, act like baby Christians. It makes sense, right? Not everyone is, is there yet. And he says, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, right? That's what they used to do, so they still do it. When they eat meat sacrificed to an idol, they still think that, they still feel that. And he says, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Hey, you who have this knowledge, if you don't eat the meat sacrificed to an idol, it's no skin off your back. I mean, It's no big deal. You're not better off if you eat, better off if you do. It's it's not about the food, right? But these people, these brothers and sisters in Christ, their conscience gets defiled. And he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Right, you exercising your right, you taking your right, you protecting your right can sometimes have an ill effect on your brothers and sisters who aren't there. And Paul says when you eat these, this food, sacrificed to an idol, this brother or sister in Christ who isn't there, his conscience is destroyed because of you and what you're doing. And remember that these are people that Jesus died for. These are people that God considered worthy to die for. People of infinite value and worth. 
He says, thus, sinning against your brother. You are sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. You're not just sinning against them. You're sinning against Christ who died for you, who saved you. Therefore, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. At least I make my brother stumble. If I have the opportunity to help a weaker brother or sister, then I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'll never eat meat again if meat is a stumbling block to a brother or sister in Christ. It's not about me and my knowledge that puffs me up and makes me think about myself, but it's about love that builds up the body of Christ. It's not about me as an individual. It's about us as a body. And Paul says, okay, let me use myself as an example. You have this freedom, uh, you know, you have this, this knowledge that you have this freedom to do this. Well, let's talk about what I have the right to do. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? In verse 4, he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which was Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Paul says, I'm an apostle. I've seen Jesus. Don't I also then logically have the exact same rights as all the other apostles? And the, you know, the, the answer is obviously yes. Right? Paul says, don't I have the right to eat and drink what I want? Well, yes. Don't I have the right to marry a believing wife just like the other apostles? Yes. Don't I have the right to get paid to preach the gospel? Yes. And then he jumps and he says, well, let me use some worldly examples. Some non-biblical examples. In verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? The answer is no one. The government pays people to be a soldier for them. No one does it at their own expense. He says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. If you work hard and you buy the seed and you're the one that plants it, you're the one that harvests it, you have a right to eat that. Everyone operates this way in the world. He says, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? He gives three examples of people in their everyday life that, that obviously live out the rights that they have. They have these rights and so they take them and they make use of them. So obviously Paul in the same way can make use of the rights that he has as an apostle as a child of the king. And he says, well, let me give you some biblical examples. In verse nine, he says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? He unpacks this a little bit later in verse 13. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He says, look at the Old Testament, okay? Look at, look at the Hebrew scriptures. They say that the priests, those who serve in the temple, should be able to share in the sacrificial offerings, Right? They get paid for their service. God has taken care of the priests for doing his work. And he says in the same way, those of us who pray, proclaim the gospel, those of us who preach the gospel, by God's command, should get paid to preach the gospel. So make your checks out to Brady White. <laughs> all right? Or to Cash is fine. Um, 
But this is what he's saying. I have the right as an apostle to get paid to preach the gospel. But, verse 19, verse 15, sorry. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provisions. Paul says, I didn't do that. I didn't go around and get paid to preach. In fact, instead, I made tents for a living. I worked for a living. Instead of devoting all my time to preaching the gospel, I worked hard for a living so that I wouldn't burden any of you, so that I wouldn't cause anyone to question my motives for preaching the gospel, so the gospel wouldn't be defiled. There would be no chance, no obstacle in the way of people coming to know Jesus. Verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul says, so though, so though I'm free, I, I'm free from all. I'm not under your authority. I'm free from all. Yet, I have submitted my life to all. Why? So that I might invite more people into the family of God. Verse 22, he says, I've become all things to all people. Hey, whatever someone needed for me to become, I've become for the gospel. He says that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. My life is lived for the sake of the gospel. So often we have the individual mentality versus the team mentality. And Paul says it's not about the individual. It's about the body. It's about the community. It's about our family Knowledge can puff up, love actually builds up. My wife and I get to do uh, premarital counseling, and we do that. When we do this, one of the things that we like to hammer home is this idea that it's no longer you versus the other person. Even though it can seem like that, even though it feels like that a lot of times. Um, this doesn't happen in my marriage, but I know in other marriages, sometimes I want something differently than my wife. Right? So I, I've, I've never experienced it, so I'm, I'm just trying to imagine. Imagine, if you will, that I want something different from my wife. No, that happens all the time, right? I'll want something, and she'll want something different. Who wins? Jesus. <laughs> he does. He does. Read Revelation. It says so. He wins. <laughs> but if we come up with a solution where I win and she loses... I don't win because it's not about me anymore. It's about us together as a team. It's not about me winning. It's about us winning. So if there's a situation where I win and she loses, I lose too in more ways than one. <laughs> but what I've come to realize, what I've come to find out is that if there's a situation where I lose and she wins, I really win. Because love builds up. Because love is not, not about me, it's about the other person. It's self-sacrificial. Dying to my wants, my needs, my rights, my urges, my hopes, my dreams, my goals for the good of the other person. And I was created to operate this way. And I've been redeemed, recreated to operate this way. So it actually is best for me when I operate that way. Paul says, um, 
in, uh, in verse 24, he says, uh, oh wait, pause. See, you thought I was going somewhere or not. Um, I did too. In Philippians chapter 2, what we see is that Jesus was the most beautiful demonstration of this. Jesus, who is God, okay? As God, do you think Jesus had the right to be God? Yes, of course. You think he had the right to all the power that comes with being God? Did Jesus have to become human? Did Jesus have to become a servant? Did Jesus have to die on the cross? No. He had a right to not do any of those things. But yet, because of his great love, his desire to save us, to build up his body, the bride, the church, Jesus submitted himself. He sacrificed his rights to build up the church so that we might be saved. Jesus beautifully demonstrated what we are called to do and following his example. What I find is that my life is not about what I have the right to do. But it's because of Jesus, it's become about what I have the freedom to sacrifice for the glory of God and the displaying of the gospel. It's not about what I have the right to do, to take hold of, to maintain, but instead what I have the freedom to sacrifice for the spreading of the gospel. Paul goes on in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's referring to the Ismithian Games, okay? So you got the Ismithian Games, which are kind of on par with the Olympics back in the day. It was, a, it was an important uh, event where, where athletes would come from all of the world and people would come from all of the world to watch and they would compete. And if they won, it was a gigantic deal. Not only did they receive a wreath that they'd place on their head, but it changed everything in their life. They gained wealth. They gained fame. They gained success. They gained stuff from the government and position and power. I mean, there's all kinds of things that came with winning these games. It was a big deal. It changed the way that people looked at them, the way that people treated them. I know we don't do this today, right, with, with, with famous athletes. Has anyone ever been in awe of a famous athlete? Like you've run across one accidentally and you're like, oh, whoa. I was in the mall a couple years ago uh, doing some mission work and, uh, <laughs> and I was walking along and there was a gigantic human being in front of me. And, and I could tell from the back of the shooting because they were so giant that this was Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, it was Shaquille O'Neal right in front of me, from me to, to, to right over there. I mean, just, I mean, just right there. I mean, just walk in and I was like, oh, that's, 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 that's Shaquille O'Neal. He's, yeah, right? I didn't go up to him and say, hey, what's up, Shaq? How you doing, man? Right, I, I didn't do that. Because I was in awe that he was Shaquille O'Neal. He's just this athlete. It's amazing. And so like I like secretly walked by and I was like, snap, snap. (laughs) 
This is what we do. An athlete, a lot of times, gets this huge amount of fame because they're a great athlete. This is what happened back in that day and age. And here's what Paul said about it, though. They compete for a perishable wreath. Not just the wreath that they get, but all that comes with it. It's temporal. It will not last. It doesn't matter what you gain in this world. It will not last. It won't last into eternity, no matter what you make. No matter how much fame you get, how much glory you get, how much position and status you gain in this world, it will not last. Uh, a pastor friend of mine told this story about his buddy who said, I want the last check I ever write to bounce. <laughs> a check, that's something that you, you write. It used to represent money. I don't want to do that anymore. But back in the day, a bouncing check would mean that you didn't have the money to cover that in the bank. Meaning he wanted to spend all of his money before he died because it doesn't go with him. Right? You make all this money, you gain all this respect, and you die, and it's worth nothing. Paul says these people, they discipline their bodies so much so, I mean, athletes, I mean, they go through great extremes to get this perishable wreath. And he says, but we have the opportunity for an imperishable wreath, one that will not perish, an eternal prize that is Jesus Christ. That is what we gain when we build upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ with precious stones, with love, with building up the body of Christ. We have the opportunity for an imperishable wreath. And it takes work, doesn't it? Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave. He says, um, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says it like this. Work out your salvation. You've been saved by Jesus. You have a process of sanctification, which is actually becoming, you know, living up to that great salvation which we have, this new identity that we have. He says, work it out. Do something. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, for it is God who is actively working within you towards that end, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah, we need to discipline our bodies. It's just so cool that God invites us to participate in our sanctification. I mean, he is working within us, and yet we get the opportunity to work alongside of him. Because he needs us? Absolutely not. But because he wants us to enjoy the work of the process. And I think about 2 Timothy. This is the last letter that Paul wrote before he died. He's likely chained to a Roman guard. Knowing this is the end, that he's probably about to be led to his death, to be martyred for Christ, which is what actually ended up happening. And he writes in the last letter to his beloved son in the faith, some of the last words he ever pens. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid out for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but all of those who have loved his appearing. Paul says, man, by the grace of God, I have fought the good fight. It was a race, man. I saw it as a race, and I was disciplining my body, making my slave, so that at the end I could look back and I could say this, that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I wasn't perfect. I was the chief of all sinners. 
It wasn't easy. So often I was like, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I do the things that I hate? But I kept the faith. And I'm looking forward to the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me and everyone who has loved his appearing as well. You know, we have grown up thinking that this life was about this world, about our hopes and dreams and our fame and our success and our comfort. It was about this world and the mark that we could leave on this world. And if that's true, then the only way to live is by taking our rights, is by protecting our rights. That's the only way to do it because no one else in this world is gonna do it for you. There's not enough to go around. And that's what the movie The Pursuit of Happiness is saying. It's not a bad movie. It's not a devil movie. There's actually a lot of great truths in it, but it's built on the premise that this world is all there is, that there's nothing else, nothing more. But that's not true. There is so much more. When Jesus comes and redeems and restores all things, he will create new heavens and new earth that will last eternity. It's not a temporal life, but an eternal life with God. And we get the opportunity to take these rights, instead of seeing them as something that we need to take hold of and protect, seeing them as an opportunity to lay down for a brother or sister in Christ to better display the gospel, to build up the church, to love It's not easy, though. It goes against everything in our flesh. I don't like getting cheated. Do you? I don't like when someone doesn't give me what I deserve. I don't like if I'm up for a promotion and someone takes it from me. I don't like that. Everything in me wants to do whatever it takes to get those things that I deserve. but realize that you have been created in the image of the one who demonstrated that true life is dying to your rights, not clinging to them. And that in the process, you get to participate in what God is doing on this earth. It seems hard, but I tell you what, the arduous journey is the most epic journey. The team mentality is the more powerful and more effective mentality, and the prize is absolutely worth it. Jim Elliott was a missionary who was a missionary to South America. And he went to to preach the gospel to this native uh, group of people that had never heard the gospel before. And when he did it, they killed him. He gave his life for the gospel. And he's, he's known for, best known for this quote, where he says, he is no fool. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If you look at it logically, you say, hey, I could get all this, imp- this perishable stuff and I could give it up for what is eternal. It makes, it makes no sense that you wouldn't do this. He or she is no fool who gives up what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. Paul says, hey, all the things that I've gained, I count it as filth in order that I may gain Christ In view of the beauty of Christ, in view of the gift that is Jesus, everything else seems so small, seems so like nothing. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
because of Jesus, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, because of his sacrifice for us, our lives are no longer about this world. He has set us free to take our rights and to give them up to make the gospel more beautiful, to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ, to invite other people into the kingdom of God, to invite other people into the family of God. Not only have we been set free, but we also have a God who has our back, a good, loving Father who wants good for us. So we don't have to be about our rights and our stuff because we have a God who's about us, who is for us. And we've been set free by the work of his son to not be about this world so that we can now take our rights and use them as opportunities to glorify God, to spread the gospel, and to participate in his epic work of redeeming the world. How amazing is our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow. God, you are great. You are mighty and glorious. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus that he died so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Thank you that he died so that we might be united with you in eternity. Thank you that we now, by your grace, have the opportunity to participate in your work. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to our minds the different rights that we have, that we desire to take hold of. And I pray that you would help us to let go and to sacrifice them for the beautifying of the gospel so that people's lives might be changed for eternity. Lord, we need you because it goes against everything that we have inside, our our flesh, our old self, all that we have learned for so many years. Lord, I pray that you'd help us because I I want to participate in your work and I want to look forward to the return of your son. I pray that at the end of this life that each and every one of us would be able to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And I'm excited about the prize that is waiting for me and all who have loved your appearing. Help us. We ask these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.